Christmas messages um, are sometimes a challenge. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but um, at Easter, we got one Sunday, and it's about the resurrection, okay? One Sunday, resurrection. I mean, it's a great topic. I love it. And um, Christmas time, I love the topic as well. But I've been at this about 40 years, okay? So I've been doing 40 years of Christmas messages. Um, and Christmas isn't just one message. It's, it's usually four weeks of Christmas messages. Do the math on that, too. That's a lot of Christmas messages. Frankly, I'm out. I don't got anything new to say, okay? He was born in Bethlehem. It was a baby. Herod tried to kill the guy. Um, he came back. And he died for our sins. Um, it's a great story. I love the story. I don't have new windows to look at it through. Um, but this year, we are going to try to do something a little bit different, and I'm going to talk about that and orient you to that. Um, and it's why we're going to focus today on the tabernacle and the temple. So let me orient you to this year's Christmas um, season, and what I'm going to do is go back and recap a little bit of what, what uh, Michael introduced us to and kind of preview some of what uh, Shane is going to do uh, in the coming weeks. So is in the introduction to this, I just want to talk to you about this idea of Advent. The word Advent is a word, literally the word means coming um, or arrival, and, and it, it can be uh, the arrival of a person, a thing, an event, our culture has started to make it the arrival of a season. It's the Advent season. It's the arrival of this season of celebration and lights and, and, and those kind of things. Um, but for the Christian, it's a time in the, in the Christian year where we are looking forward to um, celebrating the Advent of Christ. It's a time in the, in, in the Christian year where for four Sundays, the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day, and then the Sunday after that, where we focus on actually the second Advent, where the focus of this entire season, Advent season, numerous, numerous Sundays, is preparing us to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, his coming at the first Advent, where he came to save us, and then provide us some anticipation for his coming the second time, his return, the second Advent, where he's going to come back to set things right, to judge the world, to, um, to reward us, as I'm going to talk about a little bit today. And, and, he, and he's going to, to do that, and we are anticipating that. So we're anticipating the Advent, preparing ourselves for the celebration of his first Advent coming and his second Advent. That's what Advent all does. Um, and, and so with that, I'm going to start talking about what we're doing this year. Um, and, and in order to do that, I need to talk to you about biblical theology. Set that up for just a little bit. Um, on Thursday mornings at 6 o'clock here at the church, I teach a systematic theology study. About 30 men uh, are coming currently to that study, and we are studying through uh, the doctrines um, uh, of, of the Bible. And as we study through that, um, what we are paying attention to is, is what I have here. It's the study of truth about God from any and every source, primarily through Scripture, in a systematic way and organized by crucial topics that have risen to importance throughout history. So throughout the history of the church over the last 200 plus year, 2,000 plus years, 
um, certain topics have become important in the history of the church. And, and the church has said, hey, we need to give some definition to that to kind of know how we are unified in, in all of this. And so um, they eventually said, hey, we need to understand uh, scripture and, and what it is that scripture is. How is it inspired and, and uh, in what way should we interpret it? That's called bibliology. And then they started to work through um, the Trinity and, and God the Father. That's called theology proper. Then Christ and his two natures and his work. That's called Christology uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the nature of the Holy Spirit, his work in us, that's called pneumatology. Anthropology is the doctrine of man and how we're created in God's image. And homartiology is the doctrine of sin and what that sin is like. And soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. And, and, and throughout history, these things have been kind of hammered through. And, and in the Reformation in the 16th century, we hammered through a little bit more clearly this idea of soteriology and what salvation is like. And, and we've talked about ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and then finally, eschatology, the doctrine of end times. That's systematic theology. The topics arise because in the history of the church, it's kind of, hey, we have to talk about these things. We have to clarify this. We have to clarify this. We have to clarify this. And, and it's the history of the church that gives us the topics. That's systematic theology. Biblical theology is different. Biblical theology is the study of truth about God found in scripture and organized by the topics emphasized by the biblical authors. Okay. Um, so, for instance, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Um, you could do a biblical theology of suffering from 1 Peter. Um, now, suffering is an important topic, but it hasn't kind of risen to the, the big level of soteriology and homartiology. It hasn't live, risen to that, but it's an important topic. But Peter really focuses on suffering in 1 Peter. So you could do a biblical theology of suffering in 1 Peter. Um, you could do a biblical theology of money in Matthew. Matthew, more than any of the other Gospels, focuses on money. He was a tax collector. It was a thing for him. And so he really has a number of emphases in that. You could do um, a theology of the glory of God in Haggai. Um, you could do a theology of sacrifice in Leviticus. The, the topics arise from, um, from the from the topics that the authors emphasize, not historically controversial that we had to settle, but what does this author talk a lot about? What does this author talk a lot about? Um, that's biblical theology. And, and this year's um, Christmas um, Advent series is, is a biblical theology series that, that we're talking about. This last thing I have there is the cohesive center. Um, the cohesive center is a central theme that orients and holds the entire biblical narrative get together as a unified whole, okay? Um, as you look at the, the biblical narrative, not what's become important because it was controversial, but, but is there a theme that's woven through all of this that, that unifies the whole story together? And there, there have been numerous different um, suggestions for this. Um, one old scholar, Ed Hayes, um, he said that the unifying theme of Scripture is God, well, I don't actually think that's very helpful. I mean, I just, yeah, okay, um, it is, that's true. Um, other people have done some really helpful things. John Piper would say the unifying theme is the glory of God. Um, um, Walter Eichrote would say it's the kingdom of God. Walt Kaiser would say it's the promised plan of God. Um, there are others um, who would say, Daniel Block would say it's the covenant um, what we have chosen to do is, is follow a suggestion that's made by Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes in this book right here called God's Relational Presence. The subtitle of this is The Cohesive Center of Biblical Theology. Their suggestion is that the cohesive center 
is God's relational presence. That's what ties the scripture together. And that's what we're trying to show you, uh, Michael, starting in the garden, God's presence in the garden, God's design and his desire to be in, in relationship within us, with us in presence of that. And I'm going to show you that in the, in the tabernacle in the temple today. Shane's going to show you that next week in the prophets as they are looking forward to the presence of God, all, obviously all culminating in the presence of God on earth in Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it's an advent that's preparing us for the anticipation of all of this. Um, Danny and Scott say this, from an overall biblical narrative point of view, the cohesive center of biblical theology must be that mega theme that drives the plot of the story from beginning to end. There's some, is there some mega theme? And, and I think all those other themes, promise, plan, covenant, kingdom, glory of God, I think all those are very important themes, but but perhaps there is this mega theme of God's um, relational presence that's, that's at the beginning and at the end, and it's the thread that goes through everything. They go on to say this. Our basic thesis is that the triune God desires to have a personal encountering relationship with his people and enters into his creation in order to facilitate that relationship. God, as Michael talked about last week, his design is to be in relationship with us. He designed us, created us in his image so we could be in relationship with him. And his desire is to be in relationship with us. That's what they're saying. This is the, the thing from the beginning. And then they trace it this way. Thus the Bible begins with God's presence relating to his people in the garden, Genesis, and ends with God's presence relating to his people in a garden that's remade, Revelation. This holy, intense, powerful presence of God appears to Moses in the burning bush and on Mount Sinai, and then enters into the tabernacle and later into the temple. That's what I'm going to talk about today, so that God can dwell among his people. Because see, God, even though he kicks them out of the garden, he still wants to dwell within them. So he goes into this tabernacle and the temple. Yet because of their sin and disobedience, Israel is banished from God's presence. God departs from the temple. I'll talk about that today in Ezekiel. And Israel is exiled away from the land. Shane will talk about that some next week. The restoration of God's promise is, uh, presence is promised throughout the Old Testament prophets and is fulfilled in the Gospels when Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God with us, appears. Again, Shane's going to tra trace, trace that through the prophets as they create this expectation. God's original desire and design to be with us that gets interrupted, but he keeps making these plans to come back. It actually... And, you know, spoiler alert, on Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about God's presence being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But all of this is pointing forward to all of that. God is with us. The incarnation brings to a climax the relational presence of God. The theme that drove the entire Old Testament story in Acts after Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell with each believer just as the holy presence of God in the Old Testament dwelt in the tabernacle or the temple. Um, this is the theme that we're trying to tie together. So last week, this week, next week, and Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about this God's relational presence that is among us and how that is, is building this anticipation throughout Scripture of the coming of the relational presence in a person, Jesus Christ. The entire story culminates at the end of Revelation where the presence of God is once again in Jerusalem, this time a new Jerusalem in the garden relating to his people. So we started off in this garden, God dwelling within us and uh, with us, and, and God walking in the garden with them. And what we're going to end up with in the book of Revelation is the new heaven and the new earth, and God makes his dwelling among men. So this presence of God seems to be the theme that goes from beginning to end. I want to show you something else that kind of ties the beginning and the end together to give you some context into which we are going to be talking. 
Um, if you take the first three chapters um, and the last three chapters of the Bible and you compare them, there's an, a really startling contrast that you see between Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 20 to 22. In Genesis, we find this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Revelation, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis 1, the darkness he called night. In Revelation 21, there will be no night there. God made the great lights we find in Genesis, the sun, the moon. But in Revelation, the city needs no sun or moon because Jesus will be the light. Um, in Genesis 3, we find in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But Revelation tells us there will be no more death or sorrow there. In Genesis, we see that we are shown a garden into which the defilement enters, but in Revelation, a city that can't be defiled. What we find in Genesis 1 through 3 is the walk of God with mankind is interrupted, and in Revelation, the walk of God with mankind is resumed. In Genesis 1 through 3, we see the initial victory of the serpent, but in Revelation, we see the ultimate victory of the lamb. In Genesis 3, 1 through 3, God says, I will greatly multiply your pain. In Revelation, there will be no more pain there. In Genesis, cursed is the ground for, for, because of you. In Revelation, there will be no more curse. In Genesis 1 through 3, man's dominion is damaged in the fall of Adam. And in Revelation, man's dominion is restored in the reign of Christ. In Genesis 1 through 3, paradise, the first paradise is closed. In Revelation, the new paradise is opened. In Genesis 1 through 3, we have access to the tree of life, which is lost in Adam, but Revelation, access to the tree of life is regained in Christ. And then finally, in Genesis 3.24, they were driven from God's presence, but in Revelation 3, we will see his face. The story begins with God's presence and his, his presence in the garden and us there with him. Because of our sin, we are um, exiled from the garden because we can't, we can't be there anymore because of our sin. But God says, I'm going to come out of this garden and I'm going to dwell in these localized places until I eventually dwell on the earth with you in the form of Jesus Christ, your Savior, the first advent that we're looking forward to. And then he says, and then I want you to take that message around the world until I come back, second advent. Um, so this is what we're looking at here this Advent season. We're looking at God's relational presence and how it culminates and, and builds from a place, the garden last week, the tabernacle and the temple this week, to a person, Jesus Christ. And the prophets are going to tell us and point us again to that person again and again that Shane is going to show us um, next week. But what I want to do is I want to start by reminding you that, as J.I. Packer said, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve him, boldness to share him, and contentment in him. Um, this is more than just knowing the narrative, knowing the story, knowing the attributes, knowing the systematic theology. It's more than that. It's knowing God that he, his desire is to have this relationship with us. It's not just knowing about him, not facts about him, it's, he wants to be in relationship with us. And when we know him, there's energy to serve him. When we know him, we want to do what he wants us to do. When, when we know him, we're not just going through the motions. We're saying, oh, this is, I, I can't wait to be busy with what God wants me to do. God wants me to love God and love others. I'm going to do that. Um, it, it, boldness to share him when we, when we really know who it is that died for us and what it costs for our redemption 
but also how graciously that is received. We want to share that with others. And we find all of our contentment in him. We don't have to be showing anything. We don't have to be competing. We don't have to be defending ourselves. We're just content in him when we know him, not just know about him. And I say that because this series, we're trying to show you that God wants to be with us. He wants us to know him, to be in relationship. It's not just God's presence. I'm going to talk about this uh, in a couple of weeks. It's not just God's omnipresence. He's everywhere. It's his relational presence in relationship with us. And so I'm going to talk about this uh, presence in the tabernacle. And so, first of all, I I need to kind of set up some things. Um, In the book of Hebrews, we find out that there really is a heavenly temple tabernacle. There's a heavenly sanctuary where the real full presence of God is in this heavenly sanctuary. And the garden is a model of that. It's very clear that the garden is a model of that, um, that heavenly sanctuary And throughout the rest of Scripture, the the tabernacle and the temple have allusions that go back to the garden. There are trees in it, there are buds in it, there are leaves in it. There are all these things that make um, being in the tabernacle or being in the the temple, you would have seen these um, symbolic representations of being in the garden. Um, So it starts off in the garden, God's presence. But because of sin, they're, they're evicted from the garden because God wants to be there with us, but our sin contaminates the place, okay? Be, when, when our sin is there, we have to leave it. God can still be there, but we have to leave it because we have contaminated it. And so we are out of the garden, but God doesn't end the story there. What he does, is he says, you're out of the garden, but I still want to be with you, so I'm going to go be with you in this other place that symbolically represents my presence in a tabernacle. And so um, when we get to the end of the book of Exodus, they have been given the plans for how to build this tabernacle. They build it, and then we read this scene. Last few verses of Exodus say this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory, his Shekinah glory goes in, and it fills that tabernacle. His his presence is there. Um, And this is actually kind of a a frightful thing. Um, In fact, it, it sets up kind of the next book in the Bible, Leviticus, because the, the idea is, is basically this. If God's holy presence is in that tent, how do I live? Because the last time my sin was in the presence of God, um, it contaminated the area and we had to leave. And so the book of Leviticus is, is not written to tell you how to be saved, that you're always saved by grace through faith, trusting in, in the promise or the, the promise of the person of, of who God sent to make the provision for us. You're you're always saved by grace, through faith, in the provision of God. But what Leviticus does is it says, well, how do you deal, God's presence is right there, how do you deal with the contamination your sin brings to it? And so there's this whole thing that reminds us through festivals and um, that that, uh, helps us to cleanse the place uh, with all of the sacrifices. You'd have to go back and listen to all that Leviticus series if you wanted uh, to see all of that. But, But God's presence is now in this tabernacle. And then we read this, in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud uh, lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. 
God's relational presence was in that tabernacle, but it guided them. They never moved until it moved. I think there's a huge lesson for us there. I'm going to state it this way in the application. The advent of the presence of God, not in a place for us, but in a person, compels us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. If you want to get guidance, we're not looking for a pillar in a cloud. We're not moving uh, with a building. Um, The presence of God is in Jesus. And if you want to know where to go, you go where Jesus goes. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the guide. How do you live your life? Live your life like he lived his life. Um, Committed to loving God, loving others. Committed to fulfilling the commission that that God gave him, which was to lay his life down as a sacrifice for our sins. Um, Living like that and laying our lives down for others and then following the commission that Christ gave us to get the gospel around the world. If we're going to be guided, it's no longer a place that guides us. It's a person. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus for your guidance. There's another thing that happens that's kind of shocking. Um, The presence of God is in this tabernacle, and they set up a priesthood and give all the regulations for it in uh, chapter uh, 8. And then uh, the first priestly event takes place in chapter 9 of Leviticus. And then in chapter 10, we read this. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Uh, This is shocking, by the way. (laughs) After the first church service, the the next worship team is up. It's Nadab and Abihu, and whatever they do is idolatrous and immoral. Um, I'm not going to go into all the details, but there's something idolatrous. It's a strange fire. It's not the fire God wanted, and there's something immoral that's going on there. And fire comes out and kills these guys. This is a huge warning. (laughs) Here's why I would take you from that. The advent of the presence of God in not no longer a place, but in a person, compels us to anticipate the coming of a judge. Christ came the first time to redeem, and he was meek and mild, riding on a donkey, (laughs) born as a baby. When he comes back the next time, he's coming back to judge, riding on a white horse. Um, coming back with a sword coming out of his mouth. He's coming back to judge. And, and he will judge some at the great white throne judgment and some at the Bema seat of Christ. The great white throne judgment is for unbelievers. No believers will be there. Um, basically, God will say, I've got everybody here who's ever lived. All of you who wanted to, um, who want to stand before me on the basis of the merit of Jesus Christ, you guys get over here. Everybody else who want to go it on your own, you stand before the great white throne judgment. And you'll be judged by your deeds and condemned. Everyone fails the test, and they will be judged. But for those of us who are in the other line, not in front of the great white throne, but in front of the Bema seat, we will not be judged and punished, but we will be rewarded. There will be a judge to see how well we served him, and we'll be judged and rewarded accordingly. And, And the advent of Christ reminds us that the presence of God is a glorious presence. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. It's a presence of provision, but it's a dangerous presence too because our Redeemer is a judge. And one day you will stand before him, and if you are a believer, you will stand before him, and he will look at you and say, how have you lived for me? And I I will reward you accordingly. And when we see him that day, 
we will look at him in his full glory and all of us will be saying, I wish I would have served you more. I wish I would have followed more closely in your footsteps. That's exactly what's going to happen because he's going to come as a judge. Now, what happens is that mobile tent structure, the tabernacle, um, is going to make its way around the desert. It's going to go into the promised land. It's going to be in Bethel and Shiloh. Eventually, it's going to make it to Jerusalem. And then when it's at Jerusalem, Solomon is going to make a permanent structure, and then the temple is going to be the residence of the presence of God. This is 1 Kings 8. When the priests withdrew from the holy place after Solomon had built the permanent structure of the temple, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. It's a glorious filling of the temple. Um, this, is, this is so glorious. In fact, so glorious when, when they build the, the, when they rebuild the temple um, under, with Haggai and Zechariah, um, when they rebuild the temple, the men who, who saw the one before, they didn't see the glory. And we don't see any reports of the glory going back into it. I've got an application for that too. The advent of the presence of God um, in a, a person, no longer in a place, um, compels us to worship him. He's so glorious, we should worship him, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. We should look to God's presence as guidance. It should be a warning that he will judge us one day, but it should also be this idea that says he's so glorious, we will worship him. But then there's another um, shocking thing that happens with the temple. Um, with the temple, what happens is um, idolatry becomes rampant in Israel. And the, the idolatry is going to contaminate this area, and God's going to leave. We read about this entire story in Ezekiel chapter 8. In the sixth year, the sixth month of the fifth day, while I, Ezekiel, was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what happened to be his waist down, he was like fire, and from there up his appearance was a bright and glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of the head. By the way, if you have an encounter with the risen Lord, it's going to be a little bit more like this. You're not going to be, oh, I think I saw Jesus last night. No, flaming, grab you by the hair of the head. Come talk to me about it. I'd love to hear your story. Um, he's going to go on to say, the spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth and the visions of God. He took me in the visions of God. He took me Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the idol that provoked to jealousy stood. There's an idol within the temple. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel in the vision I had seen in the plain. I saw the glory of God and there's an idol there in the temple. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw women sitting there mourning the God of Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable to this. They have um, women who are worshiping idols, um, and then he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance of the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about 25 men. With their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. They're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping the creator. The creation, not the creator. And God says, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. God's glory goes up from above the, what is mistakenly called the mercy seat. It's the, it's the mercy footstool. Um, and, and God's glory goes up uh, and is hanging above that. And then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim, moved to the threshold of the temple. 
The cloud filled the temple and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of God. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. There's a rushing sound that happens here, and, and God's glory is up and it's starting to move. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped over the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was with them. The the, the presence of God um, lifts up, and then it goes to the threshold of the inner court, and then it goes to the, the gate outside. It's, it's moving away. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The Mount of Olives, which is actually where Christ is going to come back to in his second coming. His feet are going to, uh, revelate, uh, Zechariah 13, his feet are going to come down on the Mount of Olives. Um, but the, the presence of God is moving to the east and it's moving out. And I think it's a little bit of a hint that lets us know when, when God's presence comes back in the person of Jesus Christ, the star comes from the east. And by the way, that thing doesn't act like a star or a meteor. I think it's the presence of God coming back and then residing in the person of Jesus Christ. That's two weeks from now. Shane's going to talk to us about how the prophets point us toward that. But as God's presence leaves, I think we've got a warning here. The advent of the presence of God in a person compels us to walk closely with him and guard our hearts. These people had seen great works of God, but they allowed idolatry they allowed other things to become part of their worship and part of their priorities. We need to guard our hearts. So here's what I think is going on here. God's relational presence in a place that I've talked about today, the tabernacle and the temple, demonstrates this pattern of how a glorious guidance and warning is, is what we should pay attention to as we anticipate the advent of the presence of God in a person. In the Old Testament, it was the place that guided them and warned them and shocked them. And the glory was where they gathered to worship. But it's not a place anymore. It's a person. And that person guides us. And he's the one we worship. And he's the one who's coming back to judge. So I've got a few next steps for you that I'd like to suggest. One, um, going back to the beginning of our service. Pray for gospel opportunities as they make their way around the globe. Part of what Christ told us to do is take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Make disciples of all nations. Pray that that will happen in these one way that we do that through these gospel opportunity shoeboxes. Um, I'm going to say at the end of the service, but I'm going to say again too. At the end of the service, there's a table out there for perspectives, the Perspectives on the World Movement uh, Missions class. It, it's a class about how how the world is working, how the, the church worldwide is working together to finish the task God has given us. But secondly, I want to encourage you to do this. Stay tuned into the presence of God in the small things this season. Um, as I've gotten older, <laughs> I say that too often, the distractions are getting more and more. <laughs> and, and, and it's I don't think it's going to be big things. It's, it's going to be little things where you see God's presence. Little things like you're standing at a processing center and your shoebox comes through with your picture in it and God just says, hey, thanks. And you go, wow. Pay attention to the little things. A lot of big things we got to do. Pay attention to God in the little things. And take time to be still. 
And, and here's, here's what I think you, you'll find. If you'll take time to be still, you'll, you'll be transported out of the hustle and the bustle, and you'll feel some peace in his presence. But you have to intentionally do it, because the world's not going to cooperate with you. 